This is Soccer Pilgrim, the podcast dedicated to soccer and travel, where each stadium is shrine and its fans delay people. For the traveler, it is another culture to explore. Welcome to the Soccer Pilgrim podcast with Jason Kim. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Soccer Pilgrim. I'm your host, Jason Kim. And the last episode, I've concluded on how players make fans feel, whether good or bad or what have you. But today's episode, as I said, I want to focus more on the fans, the fan experience of what it's like to go to the soccer games, or even what it's like to be a fan, an international fan that go- finally travels to a La Liga, a Premier League, or a Serie A game. No matter the club, even if it's a big club, small club, medium-sized club, doesn't matter because when do we when do we ever get to see top division European soccer in person live? So that being said, the structure of this episode will be broken down into three. So the first part is the different types of fans you'll see. So the average soccer fan, like the casual fans, international fans or plastic fans, club members, or the difference between club members and ultras. So different categories of fans and in, within the fandom of soccer. And the second part will be, I'm going to, I guess, contextualize those kind of fans. So in this case, talk about the Montreal Impact. Again, that's the club that I support and it's something that I can relate to immediately. And I feel like that's the best way to do things is to always relate things back to what you're most familiar with when you go approach something new or similar. Or something that is new yet similar, like watching a soccer game in another country, for example. And also I'll be talking about some of the cultural background and cultural influences that seep through the Montreal Impact and through the club and how that also works out in different teams throughout the world. And also specifically, this time back to the first part about different fans, but also what are the roles of each fans? Because some fans, category fans, have different kinds of roles. They do different things. And I'll talk about that. And I'll use the impact as a good example of those differences. And then the next part, I'll talk about how fans feel about stadiums and clubs. You know, in the last episode, I talked about how they feel about players. They're sort of like saints and they're revered to another level that transcends sports and they've become a pop cultural phenomenon or, or, or symbol. You know, David Beckham in his prime became the symbol of England. He represented England the same way Michael Jordan represents the United States or the way Wayne, Wayne Gretzky is the symbol of Canada through sports. And then I'll end the episode with my personal experience of watching Liverpool versus Manchester United in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Not in England, not in Manchester, not in Liverpool, but it was a friendly. And uh, I'll talk more about that towards the end. All right, so let's start with the fans. There are different kinds of fans in soccer. So we'll start with the average fan, the, the casual fan, the guy or the person rather would, would go to the stadium once a week. Every Saturday or Sunday, they have a, whether they have a season ticket or not, they'll go out, buy a ticket and go to the game. Some of these people go regularly, like every week, or some people will go once a month based on availability and pricing. So those are casual fans, like, you know, normal people who go in once in a while or might even go regularly. And that's kind of how we all start. We all start as average fans just to go with our friends, go with family members, or you get invited to go watch a game with them. That happens. I've been invited to go watch Canadian games with my friends who have had extra tickets. So in that regards, I'm when it comes to Montreal Canadiens, I'm definitely more of a casual, uh, regular fan that'll go once in a while once if a ticket's available or if a friend offers me to go with them, I'll definitely go. Okay, and then there are plastic fans. Plastic fans are international fans. And the reason why they're called plastic, it means that plastic's malleable. It's it's the 
it's a British way of calling someone a bandwagon in a, in a way. But bandwagon in North America, what that really means is that you jump from one hot team to the next hot team. So you jump from, let's say, as soon as Liverpool starts playing like crap and let's say Tottenham starts, starts playing better, that supposed Liverpool fan might become a Tottenham fan because they're, they're playing well. I like Tottenham because Son is on that team and I, Harry Kane's a really good player, but I'm not a Tottenham fan. But as someone who just loves football, I don't care who wins or loses. I mean, yeah, if Liverpool loses, I'll be, you know, I'll be bummed out. But at the end of the day, I just care about being entertained. So Plastic fans, my theory is that I heard it once before, but it was used in a different context. Uh, I heard these when I, when I was in Brussels with some uh, for a conference. I was there with a friend who is Irish Canadian. And we bumped into a bachelor party or stag party of like 30 Irish dudes. They were there a lot and all wasted, not to be stereotypical, but they were there, you know, obviously they're, you know, stag party. They're, they're wasted. They're at a bachelor party. And my Irish Canadian friend started talking to him. His name is Matt. They started speaking. And at some point he was like, oh, you know, I'm Irish, but like plastic Irish. And then the Irish guy started laughing. He's like, as long as you know that you're plastic Irish and not real Irish. And Matt was like, well, yeah, but also fuck you for insulting me like that. And it's it, what they mean is that all the Irish people who live in the diaspora, so all the Irish people who live outside of Ireland, they consider them plastic because they're not 100% authentic plastic, uh, authentic Irish. And plastic is a synthetic, obviously synthetic material. So they're kind of implying that you're not authentically Irish, that you've been mixed with the local culture that you grew up in. And that's one thing I learned that Irish people find it annoying when American Irish Americans or Irish Canadians say, oh, I'm Irish, but they're like, but you're not. And apparently that's a thing. So that's a plastic fan. So because I'm not from Liverpool, I'm not a real Liverpool fan. Or because I'm not from England, I'm not a real Liverpool fan. Because all these clubs are so connected to local roots and cultures and local history that you're just born into that club. You're almost indoctrinated at birth. That if your parents turn out to be Everton fans, which are the main rivals of Liverpool within the same city, then you're gonna be a Liver- you're gonna be an Everton fan because you grew up in. A- it's almost like it almost sounds like gang shit, but like it's. That's, that's just what it is, right? It's very much a cultural thing. If we were to use hockey, for example, in Montreal in the 50s or 40s, if you're born in Westmount or born in the English part of Montreal, you were most likely going to be a Maroons fan, a Westmount Maroons fan, which represented the Anglophone elites of Montreal. And then you have the Montreal Canadiens, which represent the working-class Catholic French-Canadian side of town, which obviously the Maroons don't exist today. I think they've become the Washington Capitals, I think. Anyway. And then you have club members. So club members uh, is someone like me. It's, it's basically someone who holds a season ticket or is a member of the club. So when I buy my season ticket for Impact, I'm also a club member. So I get emails from, I get emails from the administration. I get emails from whoever. So those are some of the benefits of being a club member that you get first dibs on almost any game. And also most of the things you buy at the stadium, like concession stands or even like... Uh, like jerseys or whatever there is a discount you get a a percentage of discount so for food i get 50 percent off but there's no discount on beer which kind of sucks and for clothing and like souvenirs and gifts so at the gift shops or whatever the discount applies to not everything but on like other things like hats and beanies or socks whatever not on jerseys you can't discount those because you know that's the main money maker for adidas so a club member is essentially an average fan that's invested. Think of it as that. That's completely invested into the club financially, emotionally, and everything. And then lastly, ultras. Ultras are what is ultras are really what makes soccer a lot of fun because they're the ones that 
They're the ones that sing all game. They're the ones that come up with the songs, create the songs. They're the ones that kind of get the party started, and they're the ones that get the riot started. They're the ones that、uh, that do the huge banners, the tifos with all the paintings on it. I mean, ultras really make the atmosphere. So, a soccer club without good ultras, you will find the air stale, a little stale. I like the Montreal ambiance. The ultras add a lot of ambiance, a lot of fun. Even the I'm sitting with mostly、uh, casual fans who are just getting into the sport, and they always comment on the ultras. That's the one thing they love about coming to Impact Games because they see the ultras, and the ultras also reflect local culture. They are the ones that are expressing local culture. This is what it means to be from Montreal. This is what it means to be a Quebecois. This is what it means to be, you know, whatever. And oftentimes, people always say, "Oh, look at the flares! Look at the smoke grenades!、Uh, look at this! Look at that! Oh, that's all cool." They're always commenting, and for. A hockey city to see something like that, I'm happy because now they know that this is soccer. Now imagine that, except ten times bigger in Europe, South America, Africa, even Asia. Like if you go to Indonesia and Thailand, apparently soccer there is exploding. Like soccer culture and soccer fandom is exploding in Southeast Asia. I gotta go check it out. So yeah, so to summarize, average fans, casual fans come to game once in a while. You know, like anyone else. The one important thing about plastic fans is that the reason why the English don't really. Or just European, no, specifically the English. The reason why the English don't have that much respect for plastic fans is because there's a whole cultural connection that you're not from the city. You only support this club because they're good, and you don't really get you don't really get the customs and cultures that go into it. You don't understand what it means to be an Arsenal fan if you're not from North London. That kind of vibe, which in a lot of ways it's a fair argument and assessment, but at the same time. You know, you you miss the point that soccer is entertaining, and we just want to, you know, we're soccer fans. So fuck you for judging me. And then club members are people who are invested in the club emotionally or financially, and ultras are the guys who get or the people who get the party started. And they're the ones that might start the riots, that might start the fights, you know, fun stuff. <laughs> But I think one of the most important things that ultras contribute to games is the inflection or the inclusion, rather the expression, of local culture. In the game, so by doing so, they're telling not obviously publicly to everyone watching or to everyone at the stadium, but also to the opposition that this stadium is not just a soccer stadium. That you're entering a space that is Montreal. Everything about Montreal is encapsulated in the city and in, in the stadium, and that's what the ultras try to do to evoke that emotion. The reason why away games are so difficult in soccer is because the fans literally become the twelfth man. Meaning, on the soccer field at each team, there's eleven players. And the fans become the twelfth because they add a psychological component to the game. They either motivate the home team, they either motivate the home team, or even kind of you know pressure and destroy the home team, depending how abusive and 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 toxic the fans can be. But for the most part, the fans are supposed to support you,、uh, unlike the Real Madrid fans. And and that's why away and that's one of the main reasons why the away games become so tough because as the away team the entire stadium is talking trash the entire stadium is staring at you but with an intent that hope you make a mistake and it's a lot of pressure that's why fans are important because the ultras are the one that that will turn up the dial of intensity that's kind of what the jobs are they go with the flow of emotions and then the entire stadium tends to react to those ultras but let's go back to the ultras sort of being a the amplifier of culture if you will. And let's use the impact as as an example. Okay, I'm going to use one example, and this is one of the main reasons why I love soccer culture or just soccer over any other sport is because of the fans and what they could do in the stadium. And with the impact, what they've done is add a、uh, 200 year old church bell, 
<laughs> it's uh, it's called the North Star Bell, uh, Etoile du Nord. And how appropriate because Montreal, one of the nicknames it had in its history was the city of a thousand steeples. Steeples being the roofs of the churches where the bells would be in. Or the city of saints because all almost every other street name is named after a saint or every part of town is named after a saint of someone or a mentioning of a saint. This entire city is as Catholic as Boston, except not as Irish. <laughs> But why the bell? Why the North Star Bell? There's a really good video on YouTube done by MLS where they interviewed supporters from the Montreal side and Toronto side because they were doing sort of this uh, the rivalry, le classique, between Montreal and Toronto, or Torontonian fans will call it the 4-1 derby. And they're sort of covering the rivalry, what are the differences, and also some of the things that are unique to each uh, to each club. And when they talk about Montreal, they mention the bell because... La Belle, the way they say it, the way they said it in the video is it encapsulates sort of this essence or ambiance of Montreal that people people often want to represent their culture as a city visually by video, by pictures. But the one thing what I love about soccer is that a lot of those cultures are often expressed through noise, through song and dance. A good, very good example is watching every single Argentinian fan for their respective clubs. There's so much fun to watch on YouTube. And for Montreal, they chose the bell because every day you will hear a church bell ring at any part of town. Whether you're religious or not, church bells are a very common thing to hear in Montreal for the most part, especially towards the center of the city. And, you know, growing up in Montreal, growing up in NDG, and also going downtown quite often because that's where my parents worked, you would hear it all the time. You'd always he- hear church bells. So so what's the point of having a bell? What's it there? It's just going to ring all game? <laughs> oh, no, it... That'd be really annoying if it rang all game. But it, they ring the bell whenever Montreal scores a goal. So imagine when you have all these like 20,000 or plus people just screaming and, you know, participating in the game as they could as fans. And then a goal is scored. You hear that bell. Everybody in the stadium just wants to hear that bell go because it, it means victory. It means you scored a goal. And when Montreal does win the game, they do ring that bell. And what they also do to, to solidify this Montreal culture cultural expression in the stadium they invite people who occupy montreal's pop culture so they bring local celebrities or people significance that are of the city so gsp rang the bell uh, montreal's former captain patrice bernier his parents rang the bell on his last game uh, i feel like some olympians definitely olympians rang that bell i wouldn't even be surprised if they managed to get someone like celine dion to ring that bell i can only see that let's say an mls cup final or something where she should make an appearance i suppose <laughs> Yeah, so the bell sits with the 1642 Ultra Supporters. The 1642, the reason why they're called that is because that's the year when the city was founded, 1642. But yeah, so the bell sits with them. And one of the reason, main reasons why they've, I mean, in the video, they say they chose it because it represents the city, but also it represents the religious heritage of the city or the cultural, religious, European heritage of the city. So in any way, like, it doesn't matter what part of town you're from, church bell becomes an easily identifiable thing. You could be Muslim and not identify anything with the with the bell, but you could at least appreciate what it means or how unique of an, a- of an atmosphere it adds to the game. So the North Star Bell, being a 200-year-old church bell, some people would think, oh, you're bringing something sacred into a very secular space. And the truth is, Montreal is a very secular city. No one really cares about your religious, ethnic or even sometimes to political affiliation. Just if you're a good person that you're easy to talk to and you're just a kind person, then who cares, right, at the end of the day? But this bell, what it does, it's, 
it doesn't evoke some religious pride. Rather, it evokes more of a the cultural significance. What makes a city unique? And a lot of Montrealers do feel they could be atheists, but they do have a sense of pride of how Catholic the city is because some of that Catholicism has influenced some of the good things about Montreal, like in terms of architecture, ethics, holidays, being festive, being really being festive. Because that's one thing that Catholics are always better than Protestants. It's just being festive and enjoying the moment of festivities. But again, also, when you think of MLS as a growing league and you look at other clubs that might have something unique, you want to compete in that space of saying, what is the most unique fan experience or atmosphere in MLS as a growing league? Portland Timbers have an excellent stadium. I didn't, I missed the game that they were playing Seattle because I was leaving the day when they were playing Seattle, Cascadia rivalry. But I seen the stadium, beautiful, really nice. The men's team and the women's team play there and both the men's team and women's team is sold out every game, almost every game. It's pretty much sold out. And what's cool about Portland Timbers is whenever they score a goal, they have this lumberjack, this jacked, this jacked lumberjack. <laughs> and he cuts down this huge piece of a tree that looks like you know a huge pine tree that you'd find on the west coast he cuts it it cuts it you know a nice piece kind of like a sushi piece and it was like hey look there's a there's a piece of wood because we scored a goal and i know i'm not selling it but it's actually kind of cool to see where to see how the fans react to it and whoever had the best game that day gets a piece of that wood (laughs) and Montreal does the same thing whoever let's say had the best game or scored a hat trick or you know whatever they'll ring the bell at the end of the game it almost acts like a rite of passage that, okay, now you're part of this team. Now you're part of the city. And who doesn't want that sense of welcoming? So now I've talked about how fans add a cultural atmosphere or cultural belonging into the stadium where the players feel included and the away team feels excluded. And the fans who go to these games who are from the city or who are sympathetic or supporting the Montreal Impact will feel included as well. There's another YouTube channel. I watch a lot of YouTube. There's a lot of YouTube channel. There's another YouTube channel called Danny T Radio. He's like an MLS fan. It, you know, it's a small channel, but I, I like what he had to say because it's authentic, it's honest. And he shared a story how he drove up to Montreal with his friend because he lived in Vermont or something, so it's really not that far. Where him and his buddy they drove up to Montreal to watch Drugba when Drugba came to Impact. And because of Drugba, every game at Saputo Stadium was sold out because he was just, just such a big star and present, charismatic, good personality, speaks French. Everyone loved him. And in the video, he was saying how after that one game, his fan, who is also, I think, a Liverpool, a Chelsea fan or a Liverpool fan, someone who likes watching the Premier League. And he was saying how since that day, he's become an impact fan, that whenever he had the opportunity, he'll drive up to Montreal to watch a game in person. And what he said was the atmosphere was just because a lot of it had to do with that bell. But he said it just felt like a European game because Montreal is somewhat of a European city. And the atmosphere that the stadium gives is that of a mix of Europeanness and North American sports. So last episode, I talked about how the players influence how fans feel based on the performance or personality, whatever. And this episode, I, I just spoke about how culture makes players and fans feel a certain way make them feel a certain way towards the city where the club is in, in this case, Montreal. And that being said, the stadium becomes a place of expression and release and entertainment and and many things. And when you have these emotional or these emotional expressions, these cultural expressions, or just even all these things you do out of entertainment, you attach a certain emotion to the stadium as a result. The same way as a religious person might attach something to a religious building where they, you know, will feel, feel a certain way because they could do certain things in that space that 
they can't usually do outside. You know what I mean? Like, it'd be awkward for you to start praying over your meal in front of your coworkers when you feel completely fine to do that at church or at home. <clears throat> and my impression with soccer, especially in England, that's the impression I get where everyone keeps saying it's a place where you can release, where you can just, you work, you had a shitty week, and this is the one thing you look forward to just to see your team win, maybe. <laughs> So in that sense, like if your team keeps winning and keeps doing well and it gives you such fond memories, the stadium becomes almost like a religious space, a sacred space that this is your happy place. This is where you feel good and this is where you feel like everything is working out for you, where the universe kind of feels aligned and become atheists is because, well, they've seen it. They've experienced it. They're like, that isn't for me. I'm out of it. Or to some people who've grown up completely atheist to see religion, just see it as ridiculous and stupid. And all these people are morons. When in fact that, but you never had that religious experience. So how can you judge that? As I said, sacred. You you, you don't want to see it defiled. You you want to see only success and good things happen. You attach a lot of meaning to it. Now imagine that, except with the biggest stadiums in Europe or around the world, the Maracanã in Rio de Janeiro, or Anfield in Liverpool. Not even Anfield, Old Trafford at Manchester United. I, I, I've always dreamed of going to Celtic Park in Glasgow and seeing an old firm derby there. That would be insane. But what makes these stadiums special isn't that the stadiums itself themselves are beautiful, but it's the people that occupy the stadium that makes it great, that makes it fun. You know, uh, I hate to keep using Liverpool as an example, and I know it's boring, but it's this, one's, this one I find quite interesting because Anfield's been there for I don't know how many years, but like over 100, 200 years or whatever. And what makes Anfield quite unique is that even Everton or even for a lot of other Premier League clubs, there's no ultras. Meaning every 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 club has some sort of ultra section, but Liverpool doesn't really have an ultra section. I imagine most other Premier League clubs are, is the same deal. But the ultras in this case is the entire stadium. That's a, kind of the crazy thing is that there is no ultra, but everyone in the stadium knows every song. Everyone in the stadium knows every player. Everyone in the stadium knows pretty much the history because they are from the city. Granted, those ticket sales are only limited to those from within the city. So if you're not from Liverpool or not from England, getting tickets will be really tricky because they sell out quick and it's mostly club members that occupy like 80% of of the seats. But what makes it special, especially in Anfield, is the section of the cop end at the south side of the stadium, which it's one single tier. And they're not ultras, but that's where you see all the flags, you see all the socialist flags, you see all the all the stuff, all the TIFOs. And they're the ones that usually sing all game. But you don't have to be an a member of ultras. Oh yeah, also the ultra fans, it's it's like an organization within themselves. So you have to be a member. So you have to join them and sign up. But at the cop end, it does. that's not it. I don't know all the details, but what I gathered is that's usually the cheapest seats, but it's also reserved for those who actually live in specific parts of Liverpool, from what I gathered. And they're the ones that everybody wants to celebrate in front. Because that cop end... That one section of the stadium is literally the spirit of the city. Everyone loves that section. Even though those who don't sit at that section loves looking at it because, as I said, the spirit of the city or, you know, it's, it's, they're the ones that make the vibe. And then I remember watching on Netflix that Barcelona documentary where they follow Barcelona for a season where they've, like, won nothing. <laughs> I, did they even win the league that year? I don't think they won the, year that le- the, the league that year. And it was the voiceover is John Malkovich, which is so random, but it works out really well. <laughs> And there's an episode where they're playing 
they're going to Liverpool to play them. And the entire episode is just hyping up the moment when they lost 4-0 to Liverpool. All the players kept talking about, oh, I dreamed of playing in Anfield in front of those, that, the fans, those are unique fans, the song that you'll never walk alone, the history of the place, European nights in Anfield is second to none. Even the, Bar- the Barcelona players were saying this and, and they got their ass handed. <laughs> it's, um, but it tells you a lot what these stadiums mean to people, even those who play the game. You know, that's one of my favorite questions I like to hear from the players. Like, what is the most memorable stadium to play in? What is the hardest stadium to play in? Because it it tells you a lot of not just the vibe, but the reputation of those places, the experience of those places. Messi said Celtic Park was one of the hardest venues he's ever played in. And you can find videos of Barcelona playing uh, Celtic at Celtic Park. And you just tell that the vibe, the atmosphere of that stadium is insane. It's just a huge party. It's just like a huge rave. And it's... The Scottish are great. But also, here's another thing to consider. Location of the stadiums, the geography. In North America, when we often talk about where the stadiums are located, it's often discussed in a very um, economic way, in a very business-oriented way. Is it downtown? Is it right off the highway? There's a parking space? You know, things that make it more convenient for more fans to show up. Oh, is this connected to a metro station? Is this connected to this and that? You know, whatever. Oh, is there a lot of restaurants or shops nearby? So when you go to the Bell Center in Montreal, it's in downtown. Even the old stadium, the Pepsi Forum, it's only like five-minute drive away down St. Catherine, and it's still downtown. Even all these new MLS stadiums are always looking for spots that are near downtown, right off the highway, near you know, close to high-density areas, high-population-density areas. But if you look, again, in Europe, I mean, Europe, they're doing the same. They're moving a lot of their old stadiums into the suburbs because, I mean, it's Europe. Their, you know, space is uh, kind of limited. But the old school stadiums, especially in England, they're my favorite because they're just in the middle of neighborhoods, just like churches. They're in the middle of neighborhoods. They're surrounded by houses. Like if you see like drone footages or whatever of stadiums, you they just, they peer out in the middle of random neighborhoods sometimes. A good example of the one I think of is all the old school stadiums in London Highbury, Arsenal's old stadium before they moved to Emirates. If you see it now, now it's just like condos, really nice condos. But if you look at where it's located, it's literally in the middle of a neighborhood. Same with Upton Park or the bowling ground, West Ham's old stadium. It's in the middle of a neighborhood. So what else is in the, what else is that big in the middle of a neighborhood? Factories and, well, traditionally, factories, schools, hospitals, stadiums. The four things that all human societies need. But just visualize this for a second. Obviously, this is all audio, so you can obviously close your eyes if you want to do this. It's kind of weird for me to tell you to close your eyes when I don't know if you're going to do it or not. But just entertain me. Close your eyes. And then now imagine just if you're from Montreal, just imagine your immediate neighborhood that you live in. In this case, if you live in a plateau in mile end of Montreal, it's all like duplexes, triplexes, quadruplexes, all all stuck together like row houses, all connected and you see this uniformity of buildings, and then all of a sudden, out pops up a huge stadium. If you go to Mount Royal, you'll see that with the Olympic Stadium. The Olympic Stadium is literally sitting in the, neighbor- in the middle or is adjacent to Oshilaiga, one of the poorest neighborhoods when I was growing up. Same with Yankee Stadium. Isn't it Yankee Stadium right next to the Bronx? And it's just like right next to all these like apartments and stuff? I think so. But again, what does that tell you about soccer's, soccer's importance in England? It is the thing. It is... It is the culture, it is the working class culture of England that's permeated throughout the world, that the entire world loves it. It's, again, it's, it's a parallel with Christianity is really uncanny. I mean, if you read the Gospels, Jesus constantly recruiting 
society's undesirables. And soccer, not to call it, not that, not like there was a Jesus in soccer, but I mean, like some people call Messi the Jesus of soccer. But soccer traditionally has been a working class sport, while rugby has been the middle to upper class sport. You could see how the simplicity and achievements of soccer just transfers easily. Same with basketball. Basketball is a relatively cheap sport. You don't need basketball shoes. You just need a ball that bounces well. You don't really need a net. You can literally put a milk carton against a wall and you're good to go. Same with soccer. You don't really need a ball. If you have a rock, it's going to hurt, but you know that will do. Or a, piece of, a balled up piece of paper. And to use as nets, you just use your shoes or like bags as nets and then you're good to go. It's Basketball and soccer are sports that are made, they're made for poor people to thrive in because of how cheap and easy and accessible the game is. So you have this cheap sport that goes throughout the world easily, and then they build these stadiums in the middle of these neighborhoods. Granted, not all soccer clubs are working class. Like, I mean, classic example is River Plate and Boca Juniors. Boca Juniors being mostly working class Italian immigrants in Buenos Aires. And then River Plate is uh, middle to upper class fans. So you find their stadiums in two very different parts of town. River Plate is located like in a really nice affluent neighborhood, whereas Boca Juniors is located in a very working class neighborhood. But it tells you a lot that these stadiums are still in the neighborhood because every weekend the locals will show up to the game just like they will show up to church. So soccer becomes very much a community thing and it's very communal and it's very specific to the local culture. So that's what, so it kind of brings it back to plastic fans. So I, as a Liverpool fan, and I go to Liverpool, I say I like Liverpool. All of the locals will say, well, no, we understand you like our club because it's an international club with a lot of success, a lot of marketing. But you're not a real Liverpool fan because you don't understand what it's like to grow up in the city and and supporting this club in the shadow of Anfield. In the same ways, I guess I could be I could be empathetic to that emotion when it comes to perhaps the Montreal Canadiens. But even at that, the Montreal Canadiens, I kind of feel like an outsider because I'm not a huge hockey fan. But as someone who's from the city, who understands what cultural space that the Montreal Canadiens occupy. And if you're someone who's not from Montreal, I would say like, but I don't think you understand what it's like to grow up in Montreal and understand what the haves mean to the city. But also, you know, I talked about how in the stadium you feel great because, you know, you see a team win, you, you know, feel like the universe is aligned. But what happens if you lose? What happens if your team keeps losing and doesn't do well? I, 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 know, I know what that's like. I've watched, I'm an Impact fan. I know what that's like. But I still go. And some people say, don't you feel like you're wasting your money? You, know, you pay all this much, but your team doesn't win. And to those people, I, I totally understand. And I don't disagree with that sentiment. Because, you know, at the end of the day, you won't be paying for quality. But maybe, yeah, maybe I'm just different. But, like, I, I generally just love soccer. And I love what the impact means for the city. And it's my local club. Rain or shine, I'm still going to support it. I just want to see this club win. But yeah, like there's many times where I've walked out of Impact Games where I was upset where we lost and I'm like, oh, why am I doing this? Why do I even like soccer? Why do I watch this shit? You know, like it's, but it's in the moment and I'm upset. But the next day I'm over it. I'm like, all right, cool. When's the next Impact game? Because at the end of the day, it's just, um, I guess when you're stuck in that predicament, it really helps to be an optimistic person. That predicament of being your team sucks. <laughs> but also... When Montreal's expressing all these cultural things about the city, there will be tensions with away fans. Remember, the soccer has a very strong away fan culture, meaning fans tend to travel with their teams a lot. I mean, in Europe, it's affordable because everything in Europe is quite close. But in North America, it's a little different because, you know, it's much bigger. It'll be, I'll be impressed to find a section of, a large section of Impact fans playing in Portland, for example, it's it's all the way it's in another, it's a in another country and it's also on the other side of the continent. So, 
it's quite a lot. But sometimes, when the rivalries are closer, let's say on the East Coast, you will see more away fans. I've seen a, a large group of New England fans come up, New York fans come up, Philadelphia fans come to Montreal, Toronto fans all the time, and that's a good example where cultural clashes happen between Toronto fans and Montreal fans. Like, there's a couple of videos on YouTube about that, but it's essentially it brings up that whole. History of Canada between Upper Canada, Lower Canada, French, French Catholics versus English Protestants. Much has a very much laid back vibe to it, whereas Toronto has a very hustle vibe to it. I mean, these two cities are so different culturally speaking that when it comes to soccer, you could see it come up and expressed. I mean, a lot of that has to do. A lot of that is rooted in the hockey rivalry between Montreal and Toronto. But that's a way where two cities who do have this rivalry that, if it weren't for sports, they would probably have conflicts. Who, who, who knows? If it was medieval times, they would probably be at war. But sports becomes a way to legitimize your city over the other, in a weird way. Torontonians would often use, even Montrealers would often use, our sports victory over the other as a, as evidence that our city is better. Which is, not everyone actually thinks that, but it's kind of that sentiment that people have, right? For that one moment, especially for Montrealers, knowing that Toronto is the biggest city, is the richest city, is everything, and Montrealers knowing that. Montreal used to be that city and now is in the shadow of Toronto. So whenever Montreal beats Toronto, it's like, yes, yeah, we got one up against the big boys, if you will. Not necessarily. The relationship between Montreal and Toronto is kind of complicated. It's a lot of love-hate. That's the one thing you must understand. A lot of love-hate. One thing's for sure, a lot of Torontonians have come to school in Montreal and a lot of Montrealers work in Toronto. That's that's a fact. But these cultural rivalries is what makes the game so much more exciting and more intense because you... It's like war, you know, and it's like it's a completely different atmosphere, and it's that of intensity. It's a lot of fun. But at the end of the day, all this is done for fun. Even if it might culminate into fights, the initial start of it, the core of it, is for fun. We all just want to have fun, entertain, and how you want to carry that fun—that's up to you. And violence is not fun, but but sort of like this banter, or this mutual understanding of banter, is fun, so long as no one gets hurt. So in a way, soccer is. Is both entertainment and therapy. Church is not entertaining because you're dealing with the universe. But soccer, you don't think about the universe. You just think about the moment and you enjoy yourself and you're just happy that you had this moment to sort of get weight off your shoulder through this entertainment by watching people play and releasing that energy every time we, you know, your team scores a goal. You know, that's therapy. Okay, so I'm gonna end this episode on, as I said, my trip to Michigan, Ann Arbor. Or Ann Arbor, Michigan. So in the in the summer, early summer 2018, right after the World Cup, so like in June, July, so midsummer, let's say,、uh, a friend of mine, his name is Sam. He was studying in Indianapolis in the states, and Ann Arbor, Michigan, is only about four hours away from Indianapolis. He asked me, saying, "Hey, would you be willing to fly down to Indianapolis and then we'll rent a car and then go to the game together?" He got two tickets to watch Liverpool play Manchester United, and he's a Manchester United fan, and I'm a Liverpool fan. I thought, okay, this is gonna be so much fun. Let's go. And the, the game was at Michigan Stadium, which is, I think, the biggest stadium in the United States. So it was like hundred, hundred ten thousand people or something like that. It's a huge venue, very big. So the game at Liverpool versus Manchester United in the states, you might be asking, why are they playing there? They're having exhibition games. For those who don't know, exhibitions or in soccer we call them friendlies. They're just the non-consequential games, meaning that they are like warm-up games to the real season, if you will. You see that in any sports in so- in hockey, you get like three, four, five exhibition games. Same with baseball, same with basketball. They're just like warm-up games and get into the real season. This is a time where if you got a new player, he can you know sort of get used to playing into your team. It's all warm-up, right? 
But in soccer, what they want to do with these exhibition games, they like to tour. So some clubs will go to Asia, some clubs will go to South America, other clubs will go to North America. And China and North America or United States are seem to be the biggest markets for soccer. So a lot of them are going to these countries to do their exhibitions. And they're in the United States in Ann, in Ann Arbor, Michigan to do this exhibition. And it gives the plastic fans a chance to actually see their clubs in person. When I went there with Sam, there was at some point we hit traffic and like parking was really tough to find. And we're walking to the stadium and there's just a sea of red because Manchester United and Liverpool, they're both red teams. So it was just red everywhere. It's just like all blood gang members walking around. And um, and we, we get to the stadium, it's just packed. I don't do well in crowded spaces, but it's soccer. I'm extra patient because I know that this is what I asked for, essentially. And people are singing and chanting, and the Liverpool fans are one end, the Manchester United fans were one end. I'm sitting, because my friend who's a Manchester United fan bought the tickets, I'm sitting among mostly United fans. And I heard more of the Liverpool fans on the other side of the stadium than the Manchester United fans that were closer to me. Like, Liverpool fans were far, they were loud, they, you know, the entire stadium hurt them. So we get there, and I'm seeing this stadium, my jaw drops. I'm like, this is huge, 100,000 people, and the players start coming out. I missed, We missed the warm-up, but we're, they're about to play, and they start playing You'll Never Walk Alone. And you could just hear all the Liverpool fans, just the stadium is shaking from all these fans singing. And because I'm next to all these Manchester United fans, I'm the only one standing up and singing a song, and everyone's looking at me like, oh, look at this fucking asshole. <laughs> and I'm there, I'm like, fuck you, man. This is the one time I get to have this opportunity. I don't ever know when I'll ever see a Liverpool game live. And I watched it, and they beat United 5-0. And it was such a rout. I mean, like, it was United's kind of starting 11 with Liverpool's kind of starting 11 because this was a World Cup year. So a lot of players who played the World Cup wasn't featured. Except for Liverpool, I was so lucky to see... I saw Divock Origi, he was starting, and uh, Mohamed Salah played, Sadio Mane played. Virgil van Dijk is amazing live. He is so good. Shakiri played. Shakiri was really good that day. I remember just watching these, watching them play, and I'm like, "Wow, these guys are not just really good, but they're physically impressive." Virgil van Dijk is like six foot five, and he was marking, he was marking Alexis Sanchez on Manchester United. For those who don't know, Alexis Sanchez is like five foot seven, five foot eight, and Virgil van Dijk is six five. How is that fair? I don't, <laughs> how is that fair? And oh yeah, and I got to see Jose Mourinho, Jurgen Klopp. I saw Karius. He was on the bench after that, you know, dreadful Champions League final. I felt bad for him. And seeing them play, I was like, I, I can't believe it. This is this is what people in England get to see every weekend. And it may not be watching a game in England, but I traveled to the states to watch this among other fans who only get to see them on TV, or some of them seldomly fly to England and watch the games if they're lucky enough to get tickets and what was so great was just even among the Manchester United fan and between the Manchester United fan and Liverpool fans there was just this appreciation that they get to watch the game their favorite teams together in person at last was there fights no was there shit talking for sure but there is I feel like the connection with Manchester if you're not from Manchester you're not from Liverpool the shit talking between those fans as plastic fans so plastic Manchester fans and plastic Liverpool fans the trash talking might be super tense or non-existent. The super tense is, I feel like it's kind of overcompensation, but 
of like not being from the city or just want just want to be the baddest and the biggest uh liverpool fan it's like trying to out liverpool fans people from liverpool or it would be non-existent because the self-awareness like hey man we're just here to have fun we love these clubs you know and we're not from there why get into fights when we could just enjoy ourselves you know and have fun and that's a vibe i got in ann arbor michigan everyone and also americans are so easy to talk to uh, that's the one thing I love going to say. It's super easy to talk to. They'll talk to you about anything. And sometimes those conversations might be superficial, but like they're just fun to talk to. But the recap on that game, I can imagine that all the Liverpool supporters just wanted to sing that You'll Never Walk Alone song in unison with other Liverpool fans before a game. Everybody wanted to do that. Manchester United fans probably just wanted to see a win in person. That's probably all they wanted to see. And they didn't get that. But they got to see some of their favorite players. But also at the stadium when I was in Ann Arbor, Michigan, I met these um, Irish Liverpool supporters. They came from Ireland. And I remember I was trying to get Shakiri's attention. So I was screaming something in French to him. I think I was asking for his jersey because he's from Switzerland. So I was like, maybe he speaks French. But I think he only speaks like German and Albanian. So I was screaming stuff into him in French, but he wasn't replying. And I was like, that's rude. <laughs> then the Irish, then these like Irish guys behind me were like, why are you not listening to this band? Give him what he wants. They're referring to me. And, you know, I started laughing, started hitting it off. And I asked them, so where are you guys from? And they were like, oh, from, you know, from Ireland. I don't know. They didn't tell me what parts of Ireland because I'm obviously not going to know that. And they, they told me saying, oh, yeah, we flew just to watch this game. I was like, but they, they have friendlies. I mean, England's right there. Why not go? And they were like, oh, you know. It's a chance to go see America. And I was like, oh, fair enough. That's a good answer. And that's what they did. They 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 planned their entire U.S. trip around this one game. They're like, okay, we got tickets to the Liverpool game, and then we're going to figure out what else to do in the States. And that's what they told me. I think the next day they said they went to Chicago, which I was like, good choice. Chicago, great city. And I guess because soccer has a traveling fan culture, going to see soccer games, traveling to see soccer games, isn't totally out of the wild because that's kind of already a thing. I mean, in North America... If you're a huge NFL fan, then definitely you would want to go watch a Cowboys game or a Giants game and travel to those venues and see those games. In the same way, if you're a baseball fan, you want to watch New York Yankees play in Yankee Stadium. You want to watch the Red Sox play at Fenway Park. You you want to see that because the stadium is a part of the experience. So half the time, soccer, soccer fans not only just travel to see their favorite clubs, but also see the stadiums that they've seen on TV all the time. It's, all, it's very awe-inspiring stadiums, and I love it because they're huge and... They command a presence. I when I was in Indianapolis, I saw Lucas Oil Stadium. It's huge. It's beautiful. It has one huge glass window. Well, it's like multiple windows, I think. But one section was like huge glass windows, and it's all completely red brick on exterior. It looks like an old factory. It looks like this old industrial revolution factory. It looks really nice. I like it. That's unique. St- unique stadium. Unique architecture is something that soccer fans really appreciate as well just like churches all this to say soccer fans aren't afraid to express themselves because it's a part of soccer culture to do so to express yourself to express your city's culture your municipal culture uh, your pride your local pride even if that means including religion into that expression it adds another level of atmosphere to the game and that's one of the main reasons why i love soccer is because the game itself is fun and entertaining but it's the fans that add that special magic if you will you know, what's a Big Mac without its secret sauce? And I feel like for soccer, the secret sauce is the fans. They, they, all these players kept saying when the lockdown happened, they kept saying how much they miss playing in front of fans. Imagine you played in front of 40, 50,000 people. Every time you scored, all those people scream your name and like, you know, almost worship you to having no fans. It's like going from professional soccer to like high school soccer where no one would come to watch your games. You know, it's, it's like, it, it, that's what it felt like when I was watching. I was like, oh, this just kind of feels like I'm watching college soccer where no one's in no one's watching but people who are part of the team and 
what makes soccer forever almost like a bottomless pit of interest for me is that every club is very unique in its own way of expressing those cultures. And this is what this podcast is about, is exploring those. Once we get to travel again, I want to be able to go out and see these cultures and feel it and see it and talk to people, talk to fans. But for now, I have my memories and my stories. And if any of you have some interesting stories and memories, please send me your story through Instagram, through DM, or email me. You can send me those stories at Soccer Pilgrim on Instagram. I'll read them. If it's a cool story, I'll read it here. And eventually, once I get another mic, maybe we can have and have people in person. I don't like doing Zoom shit, but maybe talk to fans who've actually traveled and start building a community around this, you know, of fans, of soccer fans, of plastic fans, really. Where we come together and we just talk about it and talk about our experiences and what it's like to go out there. That's what I'm hoping for to do out of this podcast. So for all those who've listened... Thank you if you have soccer stories, whether it's traveling to a soccer venue or you have interesting soccer stories that happened to you when you played or that you've seen, please share. And I would love to share those stories on this podcast. So for all those who've listened, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. My name is Jason Kim and, as a, and you know, I'm obviously a big soccer fan and this is Soccer Pilgrim. Thanks for listening.